Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Toby Heaps to the podcast. Toby is the CEO and co-founder of Corporate Nights Inc., a media company that produces corporate rankings, research reports, and financial product ratings based on corporate sustainability performance. Its best-known rankings include the best 50 corporate citizens in Canada and the Global 100 Most Sustainable Corporations. It also publishes Corporate Nights magazine, which focuses on how companies, markets, and governments are advancing social environment sustainability worldwide. It calls itself the magazine for clean capitalism. Well, thank you very much, Toby, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Uh, thank you for going. It's a pleasure to be on. So can you tell me a little bit about your background and Corporate Nights? Sure. So uh, I'm, I co-founded Corporate Nights in 2002, coming out of the mutual fund journalism space and uh, being interested in in writing about sort of what the big struggles of the day were and uh, the role of business played with the sort of notion that the big problems that we have in, in our world for society, inequality, climate change, the, the only way we find a solution for those problems is if we engage the power of business. And so that's really a, a sentiment that animates uh, everything we do. Right. That's, well, you're coming up for your 15th anniversary then. You've been uh, at this for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it it uh, it's it's surprising how uh, how how much and little progress has been made at the same time. <laughs> yes. So what 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 can you tell me a little bit about the scope of corporate nights activities? Sure. So we do three things. Uh, the thing we're probably more broadly known for is Corporate Nights Magazine, the media company which publishes numerous rankings including the Global 100 Most Sustainable Companies in the World, which has been uh, an index and announced is announced annually in January in Davos during the World Economic Forum each year since 2005. And we also power the Newsweek Green Rankings for the past several years and, and a whole suite of other rankings dealing with companies and uh, MBA programs and cities and, and countries, always on sustainability factors and always, um, for the most part, trying to come up with methodologies that are as fair and accurate as is possible given the state of things right and that are replicable by by um, by third parties so so we have the magazine media we have a sort of public policy group called the council for clean capitalism which is a group of uh, leading canadian ceos of, of some global corporations as well who want to lobby on the highest common denominator plane, not for particular transactional issues for their own company, but for macro issues that will help to align the, uh, the economy with, with our, with the version of clean capitalism that we, we espouse. And then the third thing is, uh, research around, uh, creating, um, databases and software that make it easier for investors to invest more intentionally, uh, around their other goals, uh, you know, not just their financial goals, but their social and environmental goals and their other preferences in, in that regard. 
Right, right. Really important work then in terms of measuring um, what's really going on. And I suppose uh, trying to assess what are the important indicators and what really reflects genuine, sustainable, important sustainability work. Uh, we go on, come on to that in a moment, talking about uh, maybe the global 100. But um, I'm interested in this, this idea of clean capitalism. And what, what is that? It's, it's a system of capitalism not unlike uh, what Adam Smith imagined and and uh, and desired, um, it's a system of capitalism that it's not just about the invisible hand, but it's about the invisible hand being guided by moral sentiments as well. So not in a moral vacuum. And uh, technically, how we define clean capitalism is it's a system where the prices fully reflect the ecological, social, economic costs and benefits. And that the marketplace actors, whether they're customers or investors or other actors, the marketplace actors are fully aware of the consequences of their marketplace decisions. So if you're buying a T-shirt, you know what that means. If you're buying a, 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 a bush, bushel of apples, you have an idea of, of what message you send. And underpinning that, that sort of latter part of the definition, so there's just sort of the prices tell the whole story and people know what's going on. Underpinning the latter part, people know what's going on. Is a, um, is a is a uh, sort of an idea that every decision you make in the marketplace is like a vote. And so you're voting for something, you're supporting something. And we're actually seeing this become a lot more uh, focused and crystallized in this uh, sort of post-Trump or in this Trump era that we're living in. Now with people really um, on both sides of the ledger starting to uh, reward and penalize companies um, and being that are crystallized by their affinity with uh, with Trump or 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 non-affinity right that's a, uh, a very uh, great goal and a, a, a big challenge as well I guess for so long externalities of all kinds haven't been included in the uh, pricing uh, in 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 any way or in 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 small ways um how how are we doing on this journey <clears throat> I think if we were going across America on a road trip and we started out in California I think we'd be somewhere over the Great Plains right now, you know, maybe in, you know, uh, maybe somewhere near Casper, Wyoming, and uh, and then heading for, uh, you know, out of, out into Nebraska and into the Midwest. But I think uh, we're, we're definitely at the first leg of the journey, and um, certain things are starting to become more clear, but it also is interesting how it's like a mirror ground, and we sort of will figure out what we need to do and then get distracted and then maybe 10 years later come back to it. But where we've seen some progress, I think, is you now have around 60 countries that have some form of carbon pricing that is substantive, uh, that's in place now or will be in place. So that's the mother of all externalities. And we are starting to tackle that uh, through various means, um, including pricing. So I think I think that's, that's encouraging. I think the other thing... Um, that we're uh, starting to understand, but not maybe do as well as this sort of this sort of theory of nudge economics and the sort of think fast, uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman sort of behavioral psychology. We're starting to understand the importance of the informal elements of motivating uh, mass mass amounts of people uh, towards uh, uh, various uh, uh, behaviors that are that are more compatible with a, uh, a civilization that lasts. And I think that 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 part is um, less uh, developed in the sort of literature around how do we price externalities and what are the sort of politics that, that make that happen. But I think it's, it's equally important and um, it's interesting to see the, 
sort of uh, the, the, the work that's, that's emerging there. Are you optimistic about progress on carbon pricing? Yeah, I think, um, I think the carbon price, along with the economics of clean energy, which you know, now in over 30 countries, the cheapest way to add power to the grid is solar. And uh, that's, that's not a trend that's going to turn back. I, I feel like the economics will, will take care of our uh, fossil dependency. The pricing um, can help uh, as an accelerant. And I think the pricing can also serve as a model. We've done pricing on things like sulfur dioxide and 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 nitrogen oxide to um, to clean up the air in lakes, uh, particularly in North America, where it was really successful, but in other places as well. And I think this idea about um, pricing externalities is uh, getting a, a broader currency uh, through carbon pricing. And we'll, we're seeing it through congestion pricing and and uh, and and uh, innovative ways to pricing water that that don't necessarily. Uh, um, create uh, negative biases against farmers, uh, especially small small uh, land uh, holding farmers. So I, I, I think I think carbon pricing. Um, we're probably not going to see a massive push on carbon pricing, um, although you never know, from the uh, federal government in the U.S. But then we've never really seen that, and and had the election gone the other way, I think that the emails from John Podesta were fairly revealing, and that. They didn't think there was much political currency to, to really push a uh, national carbon pricing program in the U.S. But we have it in we have it in the 60 countries, and China cr- critically and India critically um, are are among those countries, and those are really the countries at the margins that are that are moving the global economy right now, and so um, that's where the growth is, that's where the movement is, that's where the action is, and that's also where the carbon pricing is. Right, right. So you uh, measured optimism. Yeah, I think uh, you know it, it. It kind of progresses in fits and starts, uh, but clearly we've made a uh, uh, a lot of progress uh, that a lot of people may not have suspected or even thought possible as as, as recently as you know two thousand nine. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit about the? Tell me about the global one hundred and what what this uh, is and uh, what really does it measure? Sure. So. There's a lot of measurements of companies and rankings, you know, who's the biggest company, who's the best employer, but there wasn't a measurement of who was the most sustainable. And admittedly, when you do a ranking, you have to dumb it down a little bit in terms of title. And it's called the Global 100 Most Sustainable Companies in the World. And what it really is, it's the the best out of the large companies on a range of measures done in a relative best of sector manner not in a context-based manner, which some people have been uh, critical of and, 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 and made valid points about. And so what we're trying to do, though, is we're trying to, um, without being sector, without discriminating by sectors, aside from um, sectors that are clearly identifiable with you know, having a primary consequence of their activities, killing people, including weapons and tobacco, the only two that are excluded. We rank all sectors and we look at all companies on the range of quantitative metrics that we can get data for, and we try to do it as fairly as possible. So, if you if you if you have a company that's on the global one hundred, what what that tells you is it tells you that company, relative to its peers, is doing uh, a decent job on on its resource productivity. So, its use and emissions of things like carbon and energy and water and waste, um, and also at the same time doing a decent job respecting the social contract. And the social contract is a is a, is a sort of a metaphor for 
how you treat your employees, so things like safety, um, how inclusive uh, you are as a company, so things like the diversity of your executive leadership and your boards in terms of female representation, um, yeah, how, how, uh, how line-tuned your governance is in terms of your linkage of uh, executive compensation to sustainability targets, which is uh, one of the litmus tests to whether or not a company is really, really serious about sustainability. And, um, and things like um, whether or not companies are, uh, are paying their fair share of taxes, uh, measured cash tax over their profits uh, over a five-year period against their peers. And so we've really honed our measurements um, and we, we, we are uh, big consumers of uh, sustainability data from the various providers, Thomson Reuters, Bloomberg, and now um, FactSet as well, and, and uh, CDP. And we really try to make the best use of all of the, the quantitative data that is um, in the public domain, uh, even if it's through uh, private uh, distributors like Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters, but, but it's just disclosed by the companies um, in the public domain. And to, to get an idea about who is leading among their large company peers over 2 billion market cap on these important factors. And we look at things like CEO to average worker pay. And a lot of the factors we, we look at have become front page factors. You know, you see the, the financial press focusing on things like gender equality or equity on, on the governance structure. You see the huge focus on CEO to average worker pay, especially in this era of, 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 uh, of massive inequity and, uh, and, 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 and populous, uh, 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 uprising against it. And it's really interesting to see the differences. I mean, it's companies, uh, countries, industries, there's lots of differences. And there's uh, companies that, that will shirk their uh, regional biases and, and lead in some cases, you know, on gender diversity, like companies in Japan, where they tend not to have a lot of uh, female uh, uh, leaders in management or on the board. There's some companies that are, you know, in the U.S. that will tend to have relatively low CO to average worker pay, where where CO to average worker pay is, uh, is sky high compared to the rest of the world. And uh, so you'll see you'll see different trends. There's there's companies in the um, in the oil patch that will have uh, amazing um, uh, resource productivities. Um, and so there's there's all sorts of things you see, and uh, it's a work in progress. We acknowledge that we're always trying to improve it while retaining some continuity um, because it is used by benchmark and uh, watched closely by a number of, of companies. But uh, we, um, we, 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 we try to uh, do as, as best job as we can and, and uh, recognize that it's a, it's a work in progress. Great, great. Sounds uh, uh, very important work. What about the, the relativity factor, as you say? I mean, how well are companies doing overall? Because you could have the number one company for 10 years in a row, but it might not be doing a lot. But relative to others, it's doing a tremendous amount. How do you, how do, how do you factor in absolute uh, measures or, or ideas about what we expect from companies in terms of uh, sure. minimum levels or, you know, or, or really where, where companies really need to be? So every metric is is different, and we've thought about this a fair bit. And um, there, it, you know, let's let's take greenhouse gases to start. So there's science-based targets for greenhouse gases, which will you know there's various ways to arrive at that. One one sort of uh, crude, but uh, you know, uh, not impractical way is uh, at a global level. We roughly need to, if you look at GDP growth projections and uh, and greenhouse gas scenarios that get us in a two degree scenario. Is a global economy, we need to, to have a roughly sort of factor four increase in terms of our carbon productivity globally. So that works out to something in the neighborhood of about 6% per year, just under 6% per year. So that would mean that you're, each year you're making 6% more revenue 
for every ton of greenhouse gases you emit. So if the whole economy was doing that, then we're on track. So you can. So one of the things we look at is we look at over a three-year period, how many of the companies are increasing their green their their carbon productivity by six percent year over year, and uh, uh, you know of the of the economy of the of the global one hundred. Sometimes it'll go up, sometimes it'll go down, depending on things like commodity prices that drive revenue. So that's one one indicator you can look at for things like tax. Well, if we went back in time fifty years ago, corporations used to pay about half of all taxes collected in a country, with the rest coming from uh, from people. And now that uh, corporations pay uh, less than a quarter of uh, taxes in, in most OECD countries, so it's went down. And so you 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 know it's hard to say what is the fair benchmark. Um, if you were to sort of say it's half of all taxes, and um, and then you were to look at a what 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 the tax rate has to be nationally in order for that to work out, you know maybe it's it's higher than the blended rate of thirty percent, maybe it's forty five percent or something like that. Uh, but the way we look at taxes, we say that the current statutory framework, if it if it says thirty two percent of profits are supposed to be paid in tax, then we look and see okay out of cash tax paid. You know how close is it to to thirty two percent? So we use that as a context, but some would argue that that's not a fair context because uh, this states that levy taxes have, in some senses, been captured and influenced by the companies that pay them to um, to uh, drive taxes uh, to a, a lower percent, which uh, results in in um, in you know not a fair context for what ideally would be sustainable. So that question of what is the sustainable rate of tax is an interesting one. It's, it's the, the legal rate has definitely come down a lot, and the actual rate has uh, also uh, come down quite a bit as well um, because of all the loopholes that are um, that are that exist. That that um, some creative companies, um, uh, some more aggressive than others, take advantage of things like safety. What's an ideal you know indicator on on fatalities? I you know I would think zero, um, uh, but you know you could you could talk with that on injuries again you know a lot of companies shoot for zero injuries but uh, it's it's not realistic for many in, many industries and um, and you know gender equity is fifty uh, percent uh, female uh, in the board is that a good number we we that's what we set as the target uh, but uh, you see some companies with fifty five percent female is that is that bad <clears throat> so each one you know CEO to average worker pay there's been a lot of work done on this some some say eight to one is a sort of a max ratio. Um, you know the the average for the MSCI um, All Country World Index is 114 to one. Um, so there's I think each of these indicators you can come up with things. There's there's an initiative called the Future Fit Business Benchmark. So the, the Future Fit Benchmark is a is a great initiative to um, to really get at these important metrics and and um, and add some context around uh, what it would take for a company to be sustainable. And so there um, there are some great initiatives and we're watching them closely. And uh, over time, ideally, we could uh, evolve our ranking from a best of sector to a, um, a ranking against an ideal uh, benchmark. At the moment, though, we, we, we just do, um, we're doing a, a relative ranking. Right. Uh, challenging, uh, challenging work. Um, and I guess another major question is how do you, how do you uh, measure or reflect the relative importance of an issue like uh, climate change or oh, yeah. many of the aspects with, with diversity, great. for example, or with, with uh, pay ratios? Yeah. So great question. I think the simple answer is um, it's not easy. And uh, most attempts to do weighting schemes introduce uh, multiple, multiple uh, uh, biases. 
and so we have uh, opted in in the spirit of uh, coming up with as objective uh, an approach as, as possible. We have opted to do equal weight, and we wholly recognize that scope one to carbon productivity for a bank is way less of an issue than scope one to carbon productivity for a utility company. You know, by orders of magnitude, more than one order of magnitude, probably. And so we've uh, recently uh, been looking at a uh, an interesting way to to come up with an objective rules based way to 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 weight each indicator that isn't sort of you know just sort of sticking your finger in the wind um, and taking some you know obvious kind of point and saying well overweight this or underweight this. And so the way that we're, it's kind of maybe a little bit difficult to describe in words, but the idea is there's um, hundreds of metrics out there. We primarily focus on 14 that are broadly available. So we're looking at a new system for, for weighting metrics where instead of looking at the sector to start, we look at the indicator. So we look at, say, greenhouse gases and say, in which sector do the majority or the, in which sectors do the majority of greenhouse gases occur? So maybe utilities might account for 20% of all greenhouse gases, which would mean the utilities sector for greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases would be ranked number one in the utility sector. And so the idea would be that you would weight most heavily the metrics which have the biggest footprints in the particular sectors. And then you would, for, for non, there's various types of metrics. There's sort of integer metrics, like greenhouse gases that can go zero to infinity. There's percent metrics, like percent women on the board, um, that uh, we'd be looking for higher percents, things like employee turnover. And then there are some yes-no metrics, which we, we tend to steer clear from, aside from the executive compensation link to sustainability. And again, that, that, that translates into a, into a percent metric. So that's what we're looking at implementing. It's a, it's a pretty major operation to do it uh, coherently. And uh, we're working with a leading uh, quant uh, business school um, that is uh, assisting us on, on that front and are hopeful that we'll find a, um, an elegant, transparent, objective way to weight indicators in accordance with the um, the size and importance of those indicators to particular industries. Right. Right. Now, you mentioned that it's uh, primarily a relative uh, set of indicators. How, how, how well are companies doing over the last few years? Um, well, <clears throat> I think, I mean, if, if you look at uh, sometimes over the last few years, it looks like we're going the wrong way on things like carbon productivity. We're now, uh, in some cases, uh, at least among you know globally, we're we're emitting less carbon per unit of GDP, uh, but for publicly traded uh, companies, uh, we're emitting a slightly more carbon, just slightly more, just over the last few years, and that that could be chalked up to a number of factors, and including maybe the the purchasing power parity currency conversion method that we use. So uh, I would say things like uh, the things where we've seen dramatic progress are the metrics like executive remuneration link to sustainability factor that's gone from almost nowhere to you know 80% of the global 100 companies do that today i think co to average worker pay is still way out of whack in most of the world uh, with parts of western europe and and japan accepted um, and when i say world i mean sort of um, mostly sort of uh, oecd um, countries although we see it way out of whack in places like brazil and mexico and in china as well, um, and that's that's an indicator that's really driving a lot of um, 
uh, outrage against the you know our current capitalist uh, system. You see people in the streets all over, and it's a it's a sort of it's a favorite metric for people to focus on. The tax right. metric has uh, over the last ten years or even twenty years has trended downwards, but we've seen it, it start to pick up uh, over the last uh, few years in many countries, and I think that's that's uh, a reaction to the G20 really focusing on cracking down on some of these loopholes in the OECD and uh, and and a little little bit less of a sort of cowboy culture within the CFO's offices that were letting things get out of hand before. In terms of, um, you know, globally, you know, whatever's, you know, going on in the global cohort of companies that we track that, uh, you know, account for most of the publicly traded companies in the world by size, uh, there's, there's a fair degree of mirroring for the economy at large. And we know for the economy at large, there's some big things that are going well. We're starting to decouple growth from greenhouse gas emissions the last two years. We have uh, uh, had GDP growth and, uh, and greenhouse gas emission reductions. Uh, you know, not a huge gap, small growth and a small decrease, but that's uh, all, all, nonetheless quite notable. And that's probably one of the most important metrics because that really drives a lot of the other things. We're still, if we look at things like planetary boundaries, we're still transgressing uh, or, be, or close to transgressing a number of uh, critical trans, uh, planetary boundaries. And so clearly, uh, whatever we are doing, um, the sum of whatever we're doing is not enough to, um, to, to protect uh, life and the life-giving services that our, our planet offers, the critical life-giving services that our planet offers. So I think our work is still cut out for us, but I think the good news is that the Thing that has put us most in peril, our uh, fossil fuel economy, is now uh, the, the sun is setting on it, and uh, the name of the game is to uh, make that happen um, as quickly and justly as possible, uh, so that uh, we don't, uh, uh, you know, shoot over any uh, cliffs or uh, or crash through any tipping points that uh, it'll be hard to um, recover from. Well, some good news there. We, we take it wherever we can, but that does sound like an important uh, step and an important measure. Now, here's a, a, a difficult question for you, Toby. I mean, how useful is this listing and who reads it and what happens as a result of it? Is that something you can track? Sure. So the uh, companies uh, read it uh, carefully. I think employees read it carefully. Um, uh, it hasn't really been used as broadly, and we haven't targeted as broadly consumers. Uh, but we noticed we, we co-published it with Forbes, and it's it's one of the most read stories on on Forbes uh, of the year when we we co-published it with them. So there's there's a clear uh, business interest in in this list. For instance, there's a, sort of more interest in this list than the, the Forbes list they publish of the most innovative companies in the world. And innovation is a pretty big catchword. So I think that's interesting. I think. When I talk to CEOs that do well in the list, and I ask them, you know, how the list is uh, is is helpful for them, they say it's it's tremendously helpful and for uh, morale and engagement with their employees. And and interestingly, uh, a lot of the best companies in the world have discovered that one of the keys to having their employees engaged is having their employees feel proud about the company. And one of the keys to an employee feeling proud about the company is feeling that their company. Is uh, is doing something to make the world a better place, and this this ranking is really focused on on a lot of those uh, on a lot of metrics that feed in and feed into that narrative into that story, and so it uh, it is something that um, I think the the 
if we had to say, you know, there's of a hundred percent of the value that the ranking creates, probably 70% of the value of the ranking creates is by making people that work for the companies that make the ranking feel proud. And, um, and then that being a sort of a, uh, uh, a virtuous, uh, cycle within the company in terms of company providing more resources to, to maintain their leadership and improve their leadership on this factor that their employees care about, uh, which motivates their employees to be more productive, uh, ultimately, which, which ultimately results in, in more productive employees, uh, and more successful companies. Investors look at it. We have some products, uh, that are licensed to, um, to create investment opportunities. The Global 100 Index um, is really an experiment in some ways to see if you don't make a sector bias, do the better companies on sustainability over time outperform the, uh, the, the broad sort of market. And now we have over 12 years of history with the Global 100 in a pretty fair, you know, non-sector, in a sector neutral way. And the Global 100 Index has uh, markedly outperformed the benchmark, the MSCI All Country World Index by a little over 1% annualized each year um, over a 12-year period and, and has been ahead of its benchmark without interruption since uh, the beginning of 2006. So I think that that is a, a powerful exponent uh, to the, uh, the thesis that the more sustainable companies uh, can uh, perform as well as uh, the market in general. And in this case, we have a slight outperformance. Right. Well, that counts, um, particularly when you take into account fees and, and, and you look at this over a number of years. I think there's some very compelling evidence now about the various ways in which uh, sustainable companies not only generate better financial returns, but actually generate better investment returns as well. And that's quite exciting news. And I think there's a lot more uh, to happen there. And uh, investors certainly seem to be paying a lot of attention to that, uh, which, which is only good. What other measures would you include, Toby, if somebody wants to get a, a full picture of, of a company's sustainability initiatives? Well, I mean, I think for every every company, you look at the core kind of thing, and um, you know, for utility, you want to look at what percent power they're generating from renewable sources. For a retailing company, you want to look at ideally the metrics are hard to get. You know, you, first of all, you want to make sure they're publishing all their factories, like Gap recently did. But you also want to have an idea of what percent of their overall workforce, including their supply chain, is paid a, a living wage, and how that living wage is defined. Um, and if they're implicated in any kind of uh, forced or, or child labor, if they have the proper sort of management systems to, um, to take care of that. And there are good sources like Know the Chain, which uh, does a really good job focusing on IP, apparel, and, and, uh, and prominent right, companies right. in that regard. Are you, sorry, are you so, suggesting? Uh, sorry. It depends on the company and the industry. But right. you really want to look at what is that company? Not, not, you know, I don't care if they're using recycled paper at the bank. I want to know. You know, what's their power asset financing mix? What percent is renewable and what percent is fossil? Um, so that those types of things um, right. kind of cutting to what is the core impact of that sector and then getting getting the, um, right. the best metric or proxy for that metric. Right. Now, is that information you provide? Because it sounds quite detailed. You know, if I was looking at, you say, say retail and energy, completely different kinds of measures. And you're right, you know, uh, you know, recycling paper uh, is something that, you know, or, or just some of these things that you can think of that you think, oh, yes, that makes sense. But actually, you've really got to be thinking of the two or three, the really biggest drivers. So is, is there some place that, you know, that you can get this kind of information that identify what are the key drivers per industry and, 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 and how they rank? So we've done a fair bit of research around this. this yeah, I think the the short answer is 
there actually is a amazingly impressive amount um, of of user friendly um, differentiated lists about these things. Like if you, know, if you care about child labor, forced labor, you go to Know the Chain. If you care about animal welfare, you go to Business Benchmark for Animal Welfare. If you care about climate policy, public policy influence and lobbying, you go to Influence Map. If you care about companies providing nutritious food, you go to Access to Nutrition Index. If you care about companies that are providing affordable medicine for pressing, uh, developing uh, country disease, you go to Access to Medicine Index. And, and so there's about 30 different indexes you know, the deal with palm oil to see seafood to deforestation around specific themes that are really well done, really transparent, done by organizations with really good credentials that are quite trustworthy and transparent in methodology that you can you can use. Um, for our part, when we publish our, our rankings, um, we uh, make a, a spreadsheet uh, freely available with all the uh, scores for the Global 100 companies that people can see on the metrics that, that we track. A lot of those metrics I was just discussing um, are not yet uh, integrated into the Global 100 because they're more sector-specific metrics that are not broadly applicable across the economy. Um, but they are integrated into our investment software, and uh, we do have a, an eye to um, wanting to um, integrate them into our uh, actual uh, uh, rankings, such as the, the Global 100 and the Best 50. It's part of that, that process that I d described earlier. Right. That's very interesting. Um, that's clearly very important due to the different factors within each industry. And I think that's a very useful uh, list of uh, sources of information for, for, for that kind of material. So I've read some figures, Toby, that suggest that uh, 90 companies cause two thirds of uh, man-made uh, carbon emissions. And I'm just wondering, what, uh, how that affects how you think about measuring sustainability and should there be some uh, way of focusing on maybe these companies? I know you do a listing of the top 100, but um, does that raise questions about what other kind of measures or lists that you might put together? Sure. So I think uh, two things come out of it. One, um, that's destructive as to why we would want to weight the measurement of greenhouse gases much higher in those industries that account for the vast majority of carbon emissions, particularly uh, utilities on a on a scope one and two, um, being the sort of accounting for the lion's share. I think the S and P five hundred utilities account for something like forty percent of uh, the greenhouse gas emissions. So definitely, it, it speaks to uh, putting a large emphasis on the weighting, uh, so the preponderance of the weight uh, in those sectors is placed on on greenhouse gases. In terms of other lists. Uh, we have in the past done uh, some lists uh, around sort of like the biggest greenhouse gas polluters, the toxic 50 most uh, uh, largest toxic uh, polluters, and there there is there is room for those lists, and um, and we probably we're working um, right now on uh, on doing a few more of those lists, but we haven't done them is consistently, and I guess it's it's sort of um, I think it's important to do those lists, and there were NGOs historically who focused on publishing those kinds of lists who are a little less active and it's a really important space that that needs to be filled and we um, are happy to provide assistance and guidance and we, if nobody fills it we may fill that space again so the, the thinking so some of the some groups like bank track do a really good job focusing on what uh, or do do a, a pretty good job at focusing on which uh, financial institutions are linked to financing um, some of these more controversial impactful uh, uh, projects on the environment and so a consideration for us, so is we want to maximize 
change and it's uh, the the messenger uh, for uh, uh, and and the message matter and so if um, if companies uh, understand us standard companies understand corporate nights is I think uh, what we strive to be understood as is a fair arbiter of who is leading um, and and also uh, who is lagging and our editorial uh, will will hit on both of those points. But we, we, we have a we have a, a slant to our coverage is we're more looking for the solutions than the problems. And I, I think if we were if we if if we don't get the balance right, if we're seeing more as a kind of greenpeace banging companies over the head about where all the problems are, then the message about the solutions may um may may get lost in, in the muck. So it's not about ignoring the problems. Um we definitely clear eyed about the problems. It's not about giving a pass to um uh, big transgressors, and we have a column called Heroes and Zeros, and the zeros we focus in on the biggest transgressor of the last last quarter. Um, but I, there is a uh, there is an important role to shine the light on who the real Lakers are, and um, it's it's uh, it's it's probably worth us taking the risk to our reputation to go and do that if nobody steps up uh, to the right. plate to right. do it. Yeah. Uh, but it it it, 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 it hasn't been done. But it, there's a gap right now in the marketplace for that. Right, right. Interesting. Now, uh, what would the tipping point be or look like, do you think, when it comes to sustainability? There's been tremendous momentum. Um, and I'm just wondering, what, what, what point would you think that uh, what kind of things would need to happen that you feel that sustainability is really, truly embedded? Uh, that's interesting. Well, I guess the uh, at, at a starting point, you would have the sustainability information, key, key, key bits of it for key industries and companies would be reported in the same timely and comparable way that financials are currently reported. That would, uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a necessary condition. And if that's happening, then that means a lot of other things are happening too. And the marketplace has the information to properly uh, process. I guess it would, it would mean culturally, um, in terms of corporate culture, human culture, there would be a, a a broad awareness, sort of how there is for recycling in, in say, North America, in any case where I'm familiar, where people just, the idea that you would throw a aluminum can into the garbage is, is, is almost repulsive to people. And that's really kind of something in the last 30 years. So the idea that you would just chuck your your coffee cup out the window of your car, you know, litter, be a litter bug, is, is uh, just completely kind of uh, uh, taboo. And so I think we'll start to see certain things uh, other other interactions with the environment to be taboo. You know, the idea that you would have big package for something will just be looked at as ludicrous. You know, with wasteful packaging, the idea that you would have waste, you know, be wasting resources in some way, will be seen as just kind of uh, ludicrous. And so I think I think when we see a bit of a cultural mind shift to um, you know more more a more conservation oriented sort of conscientious conscientious uh, culture around our consumption of resources. That that will tell us uh, that we're heading somewhere, um, and so uh, you know those are sort of maybe hard things to put a you know uh, those are sound more like qualitative things than than measurements. If we we're going to look at, at actual numbers, I think it would mean that we have uh, uh, a multi-decade uh, of uh, GDP growth as flawed a measure it is as it is coinciding with a multi-decade uh, greenhouse gas global greenhouse gas reduction. That that will tell us. I think it would, I know, on a, on a quantitative level, if you were to look at the key planetary boundaries that uh, uh, Jonas Rockström 
um, his colleagues have, have laid out, we, were, we would be uh, we would be stepping back from uh, those uh, uh, boundaries that we're um, uh, most uh, precipitously at at the moment. Um, I think you would see uh, things like um, you know, uh, hopefully my child, uh, who's nine months, will never have to fill up a car with gas, not because he's some sort of um, bourgeois, <laughs> uh, which I doubt what will ever happen, but because you know the the combustion engine will be a, a relic of the past, you know, in fifteen years. So uh, it would be things like that. Ah, interesting, interesting. Now, um, I, I spoke to um, Ecovadas, and they uh, do measures of uh, various sustainability measures, particularly focusing on the supply chain. And one of the points that came up in the conversation was about uh, uh, changes that are scalable. Um, and, you know, you can have lots of changes within an organization that are important and good and so forth. And I'm just wondering what you think might be one or two changes that could take place that could be really scalable. From a system architecture or from a business practice? A business practice. Uh, and, and from a regulatory perspective or just from the perspective of a business, uh, voluntary perspective? Yeah, from the perspective of business. I guess the, uh, I mean, one thing that we've been seeing catch fire uh, is the move towards uh, being 100% renewable powered. There's a sort of renewable energy coalition. You have Google and some big companies like that uh, shifting over and, and, uh, and making you know, Tesla 100% renewable powered. So that's a, that's really there's a lot of things you can do. But if if we shift the if if we shift the energy economy from fossil to renewable entirely. That's a decent chunk of, of, of everything that we have to do. So companies can do that. Companies are doing that. There's a structure to do it. There's a reputational reward to it. And there's also some sort of energy security potential benefits. So I would say shifting to um, zero carbon, 100% uh, zero carbon energy, and, and uh, you know, including using flexible mechanisms that were necessary to do that uh, for big companies. That seems to be, you know, pretty easy and scalable, very relatively easy to do and and, uh, and scalable. And if all companies did that, it would add up to something significant. Right, that's interesting. Um, and and um, just following on from that, I'm just wondering. Um, you mentioned regulation. To what extent? I mean, regulation clearly, and there's been uh, some important regulatory initiatives. I know in the United States in, in the last few years, um, has been a major driver of. Uh, many corporate sustainability initiatives. I'm wondering to what extent you think uh, their co corporate sustainability initiatives are now being driven by a business rationale and less, you know, regulatory and risk avoidance, shall we say? So I think I think we we cannot overstate the importance of having a good referee at the on the playing field, and the government is the referee. And the rule book are the regulations, and we cannot overstate the importance of having a valid rule book and a good referee. Uh, absent that, I think we uh, risk uh, Hobbesian type outcomes in, in, in many scenarios. So uh, I think we should distinguish from businesses that are smart and self enlightened enough to see the long term trajectory of the playbook and the uh, enforcement of the referee, and businesses that are short sighted. And uh, and and uh, and short-termist, and and maybe uh, and narrow-minded, and do not see the larger 
trajectory of of of, of the, the evolution we're seeing on the regulatory um, rule book and the um, the referee enforcement. And so, you might have a case where you have a certain country, a large country, elect a certain individual who may not seem the most sympathetic to the sustainability agenda, such as um, you know the neighbor to the south of the 49th parallel of my country. And uh, some businesses may interpret that as uh, a sort of um, kind of carte blanche uh, to uh, to go and do whatever they want and, and throw all these um, sustainability programs, energy efficiency, and and whatnot down down the toilet, and uh, and and cozy back up to uh, polluting and uh, wasteful and carbon intensity um, and, and things of that ilk. And, and I would say that um, those businesses will probably be uh, uh, short-sighted um, and narrow-minded because the pendulum of history sort of shows that it swings one way, swings back the other. But the long-term arc is quite clear, and uh, and so I think I think businesses that that are doing things, even if it looks like they're doing it on a voluntary basis, often they're doing it against the context and expectation of what the trajectory of the rule book and the referee enforcement is going to be. And sure, there's some lots of wiggle room for leadership up beyond that. But I, I, don't, I think we, we delude ourselves if we, if we think that the uh, major driving force of, of this stuff is um, uh, sort of just um, uh, corporate uh, uh, goodwill. Uh, sometimes there'll be a, you know, a stakeholder case for that. Um, but uh, the regulatory, uh, the rule book and the referee, the importance of them cannot be, cannot be uh, overstated, I don't think. Right. And given the current context in the United States, what hopes have you got for the sustainability agenda over the next few years? There's talk about China taking up the mantle. Um, what What do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, in some ways, we're uh, it, 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 as ironic as it may sound. If you care about sustainability, we're all Chinese now, and uh, you know, with 1.6 billion people, a long term perspective, and a uh, a Burning political imperative to uh, do something about dirty air in the in the capitals, large capitals and large city centers. Uh, China uh, sees sustainability, the green agenda, is its opportunity to take the mantle of leadership, global leadership from the United States. And uh, this is this is a geostrategic and a domestic issue at the highest order, at the highest level in that country. And I'm really happy that um, that's the case because it almost makes what happens in the U.S. Uh, a rounding error at the moment. Right, and you're optimistic that the that the, the vision, the Chinese vision, uh, and their leadership will be uh, positive. Uh, well, that's a bigger question. Um, I'm uh, terrified um, and optimistic at the same time. I'm I'm optimistic <laughs> that the uh, the um, Chinese will, um, unlike the Japanese in many cases, will be uh, honorable global stewards of the of the global commons, environmental commons, not just within their own country, like the Japanese were good, but in um, other uh, countries um, as well over the long term. Um, you know, there won't be a completely uh, uh, a white, white uh, green record, but I, I think it'll, I think they'll, it'll be, it'll, it'll be, there'll be less incongruence between what they do at home and what they do abroad, um, where they're uh, dissimilar to the, the model of, of um, uh, other rich uh, nations of the last hundred years. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm terrified on the uh, the sort of uh, looming kind of big brother uh, invasions of privacy, uh, matter of censorship. You know, the the reality of censorship being the matter of an algorithm, 
and uh, and the Chinese certainly uh, don't uh, inspire a huge amount of hope on 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 some of those levels. So, um, you know, what will how the system will evolve is they um, mature and uh, uh, grow in in in, in wealth and. Uh, in integration with the rest of the world is that uh, the uh, the sort of sixty four thousand dollar question, or maybe it's the six the nine billion person uh, question of the twenty first <laughs> century. Thank you, Toby. Thanks. So, what are your aspirations for corporate nights over the next five to ten years, Toby? Sure. So, the we'll continue to do what we do on the magazine chronicling. Uh, who's leading, who's lagging with uh, rankings and, and stories. And I would really like to get at the nub of this question, which is what if the 500 million people who are fortunate enough to have money to invest in the market, who control collectively $100 trillion of investments, what if these 500 million people's wealth reflected their personal values? What would the, the world look like? And so a lot of what we're focused on, what, I'm, what we're focused on at Corporate Nights is, uh, is putting in place the infrastructure that will enable us to answer that question with right. respect to uh, uh, making it easy for investors to identify and define their values and then apply them in, a, in an easy, um, non-costly way. Well, there does seem to be quite a bit of momentum there as well. I uh, wish you the very best success with that, Toby. And I thank you so much for taking the time to speak to the sustainability agenda today. It's been fascinating. Thank you, Fergal. It's been, it's been a pleasure and uh, enjoyed it and uh, look forward to, uh, to staying in touch. Thanks, Toby. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.